Hey, good morning and welcome. Thanks for joining us on this Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if this year feels like it's rolling by at warp speed. It sure does to me. It's already February of 2021. We are already on our second series, our preaching series for the year. And wow, it just seems like so many things have, have happened. Over the next couple of months, all the way up till Easter, we're going to be focused on the topic of spiritual friendship. We'll be talking about this vision that God gave us in Ephesians chapter 4 for how to relate to one another and how to be in relationship as a church. We're calling it spiritual friendship, and there's some specifics about it that are very important for us. And I'm excited about this series because I think it will both bring comfort to those of us who need to hear it, and also a sense of challenge to help us become a brighter light in this time of darkness in our culture. Uh, I'm very hopeful that as a church, we can really grow together as we focus on this series. So we're gonna do three things today. First of all, we're gonna talk about why this series in particular. And then number two, we're gonna talk about the definition, what is a spiritual friendship? And some of you might be just thinking, well, isn't it just about being a friend and talking about spiritual things? Uh, it's actually a little deeper than that. And we'll talk about the specifics as we get into Ephesians. And then finally, we're going to launch a new ministry for 2021 called Access Prayer Groups. And so some of you heard me talk about it last weekend uh, during our Zoom worship gathering. We're launching it this week with some signups. So hope you get excited about that. Um, I'm hopeful for all the different changes that will bring to the dynamics of our faith village. Now let's begin with our first question for today. Why are we doing this series right now? I'd like to offer three different reasons. The first reason is this. During this time of COVID, we have not only had to struggle through a pandemic, but we've had to suffer through the uncomfortable isolation that this pandemic has brought. And we've had to be isolated at times to stop the curve um, to lessen the infection rate of this virus. But the unfortunate thing that it has led to is more isolation and loneliness and all the um, detrimental effects that have gone along with that. So last year, around the summertime, my cousin in California, one of my cousins in California, came down with COVID. He went to the ER, and quickly he had to be isolated from his family. So his wife and his kids couldn't find out what was going on with him. His situation got worse. Uh, the doctors uh, said that it was a severe case, and he was placed in the ICU. He was given uh, oxygen to breathe, and he was too weak to communicate with his family. All they could hear were a couple of updates a day from the doctor. Uh, but during this very dark time for him, when he was struggling for his life and he was in ICU, he was separated from his family, and his family couldn't be with him. And I share that story with you today because it just highlights what so many Americans have had to face and so many people around the world have had to face with COVID-19. Not only has it endangered lives, but it has caused us to be separate and isolated during some of the most distressing times of our lives. 
Now, thankfully, my cousin got better and his situation turned around for the good. He healed up and he's doing great today. One of the things that we have discovered over the course of this past year is that Americans are doing worse than ever before in terms of their mental health. So the Gallup organization did a study at the end of the year, at the end of 2020, asking people about the state of their mental health. And their numbers reveal that Americans are actually doing the worst they have been in about 20 years since they began this study. People are feeling more isolated and more anxious and more depressed than ever before. This is something that experts had been warning us about since the beginning of the pandemic. And last year, if you'll remember, we had accessed a, a worship service uh, on the topic of mental health, and we invited several mental health professionals to share with us some tips on how to mitigate some of the damages that came with COVID-19. But interestingly enough, when the Gallup poll did their survey at the end of 2020, they found that there was one group that actually fared better than all the others. Uh, while all the others had negative numbers, this one group had positive numbers on the state of their mental health. And can you guess what that group was? Well, it wasn't singles, wasn't marrieds, it wasn't related to race or to class or how much income you made. It wasn't the young or the elderly. It was people who went to a religious worship gathering once a week. I found the results of this survey particularly encouraging uh, for a number of different reasons. I mean, naturally, and of course, I provide and help put on Sunday worship gatherings because I feel like God has called me to do this. I do this to be faithful to the call of God. But it's very nice to know that there is an added benefit that I may be helping people have better positive mental health as a result of being involved in a worship gathering on Sundays. The second reason why we're doing this series is because we are a lonely generation. You see, isolation and loneliness are not just new problems uh, that have come about because of COVID-19. They are long-standing chronic problems that we have faced in the United States. So back when we started planting uh, access back in the late 2000s, I stumbled upon this book by John Cassiopo. He was a distinguished professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Chicago, and it was a fascinating book looking at the topic of loneliness. And here's a question to ask yourself this morning. How many people in your life can you confide in? If you were ever in a bind and you needed to share with someone else, how many people could you go to? Just take a moment and come up with an answer in your head. You certainly don't have to answer this out loud. In 1985, when researchers asked a cross-section of the American people, how many confidants do you have? The most common response to the question was three. In 2004, when researchers asked again, the most common response, made by 25% of the respondents, was none. One quarter of these 21st century Americans said they had no one at all with whom to talk openly and intimately. 
This is a problem. As Cassiopo explains in his book, the loneliness has led to all sorts of mental and physical health challenges. And one of the challenges and one of the factors that plays heavily into this, writes Cassiopo, is that we as Americans living in the United States have long prized professional goals above relational ones. We put a a premium on our careers and our job and our vocation above friendship and people that are close to us. Uh, And this is something that we all know. I mean, how many people do you know who move because of a job or job opportunities? That's a pretty common story in our culture. But how many people do you know who move for a friendship? or because they want to be part of a community, or they refuse to move because their family and their friends are so important to them. That's not so much the case. It's because in our culture today, we have long prized our professional careers above relationships. And that's why we need this vision from God that we're going to be talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. The third reason why we're doing this series is what I call the porcupine problem. Now, you may think the simple solution to isolation and loneliness is simply just to get together with people, just to provide more opportunities for relationships. And yeah, you would be on the right track for that. Yes, that's part of the solution. But it's more complicated than that. So Arthur Schopenhauer uh, was a philosopher who gave this parable once about the plight that we find ourselves in as human beings. We are like porcupines on a cold day. The cold drives us together to find warmth. We need it. We need each other. But as we huddle together, our quills get in the way and we start hurting each other. It's painful to be close. So we move apart and we separate And then we discover it's too cold again, being alone, and we miss having company. This happens again. We draw close together, but we hurt each other in the process. It happens over and over again until finally we settle on a polite medium distance, which is really to nobody's liking. We're cold and we can't be close. I think Schopenhauer's parable of the porcupines is an apt description of humanity and our struggle for relationships. And anyone who's been honest about their relationships knows this. You know, family and friends can bring us some of the highest highs in life. They can be some of the greatest sources of joy. But at the same time, our relationships can also bring us the worst pains. Some of the deepest pains can come from the people who are closest to us. In scripture, there's a description of two different opposing forces that influence our relationships. See, on the one hand, we are created in the image of God. We were designed to love, and God tells us that the most important commandments are to love Him and to love our neighbors. Love is part of our design. It's part of who we were meant to be and, to, and what we were meant to do. At the same time, we human beings rebelled against God, and we invited sin into our souls, and it has corrupted the way that we were designed to live. And so no longer do we live perfectly as God's image bearers, but we distort things that were good. 
So love turns into lust and selfishness. Generosity turns into greed. And all the different things that God had designed for us in the beginning become ways in which we hurt other people and hurt ourselves. And that's why simply being together isn't the solution to loneliness. We need to be taught how to be in relationship. We need the wisdom of God. And that now brings us to our passage for this series and what spiritual friendships is all about. So, what is a spiritual friendship? Now, first of all, before I answer this question, before we dive into the text, two quick uh, words that um, might help clarify what we're talking about. Number one, I realize that some of you may have some very spiritual friends in your life. I mean, have you ever had a friend that was very spiritual in their makeup and in their um, in their mindset and just had a special way of looking at life and maybe pointing out things that nobody else seemed to notice. I've had a number of friends like that over the years and I've really treasured them. But a, a spiritual person in your life isn't the same as being in a spiritual friendship. And we'll clarify that as we go along today and look at Ephesians 4. The second word of clarification I want to make is that although Ephesians 4 gives us a vision for how to be together as a church, for how to have relationships with other people who have made a commitment to Jesus, the things that we're going to be talking about have a huge have huge ramifications and implications for how we relate to the rest of the world. In other words, as we learn how to relate well as spiritual friends, God may call you to develop a spiritual friendship with other people who are outside of the church to bless their lives as well. I am certainly the glad and happy recipient of people in high school who decided to share with me the words of Jesus and to share with me the gospel, the news that God had saved us from our sin through Jesus. I became a Christian that way. And in the days to come, I really do hope that we can be a beacon of light in this manner to other people. Uh, we're going to get to more of that is in this series Let's dive into Ephesians chapter 4. So, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. 
There are a couple of things I want you to notice in the passage that we just read. First of all, Paul points out this former way of life. And he doesn't pull any punches when it comes to talking about this culture that was surrounding the Ephesian church. It was corrupt. It was full of greed and evil desire. And the Ephesians were very well aware of it. They had grown up in it. It had formed and shaped them. And they were leaving it behind as they became followers of Jesus. But Paul wants to very specifically point out some of the ways in which it had influenced them. You see, it was a culture in which any internal desire was welcomed and indulged in. If it came from inside of you and you wanted it, well, get more of it. Go and grab more of it. And that's how Paul could describe it as being full of greed. It didn't matter if this desire harmed other people or yourself. It was all about indulging in sensuality. And so Paul calls it out for what it was, a life that they should leave behind. Back in January this year, we started with our theme verse, which comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, which talks about God giving us a spirit of love and power and self-discipline. And specifically, last weekend, Pastor John talked about self-discipline. It's important to note this because, you know, as human beings, we are full of different internal motivations. We have both good desires and bad ones, positive desires and negative ones. And self-control is all about learning to pay attention to some of those negative impulses that are leading us in a bad direction and saying no to those things, being able to resist some of those temptations that come up within our lives. It's important to understand that there is an old self that needs to be sort of dismantled as we come to Christ. God is teaching us a new way. There is what we might call a first formation. All of us have it. We've been formed by our family, by our friends, by our schools, by the media. And these things sometimes carry with them very harmful aspects. That's what Paul is calling out in the lives of the Ephesians, and that's what we are being called to pay attention to as well. And when I first became a Christian, I was a high schooler, like I mentioned, and one of my most glaring sins at the time was my language. I tended to cuss a lot. I had pretty foul language. Now, I had learned not to do this in front of my parents, of course, but at school and at church, I was pretty foul-mouthed. In fact, my best friend and I would sometimes come up with brainstorming sessions for how to insult people that we didn't like at school. To make them feel worse, of course, we would use uh, more extreme language. One Sunday after I had become a Christian, uh, my good friend Kenny uh, noticed that as we were on our way to lunch, I was using some swear words again. And he said, you know, Ted... Now that you're a Christian, you might want to take it easy on the cuss words. And I thought about it. And I was like, he's totally right. I can't be doing this now that I'm a Christian. I was motivated to change. You see, I had lived in a certain way and it wasn't healthy for the people around me. And I later on came to discover that some of the kids in high school had a nickname for me. While my best friend would insult people and make them feel bad, 
I was called salt because I would come along and pour salt on people's wounds and make them feel much worse by my laughter and by my words. It's not a reputation I was proud of at the time and certainly it needed to go away because God had bigger and better plans for me. But this is a dynamic that we're paying attention to in Ephesians 4. There's an old self that needs to be put away. The second thing I'd like you to notice that is in this passage, there's a a call to put on the new self. There is a call to be formed in the way of Christ, to live according to a higher standard of righteousness and holiness. The second thing to notice here is Paul's teaching on putting on the new self, which is being created to be like God in true holiness and righteousness. And this is really important for us to understand. You see, God, God's formation process is a cooperation. He initiates by changing our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He initiates by giving us, giving us His Spirit. He initiates by loving us and giving us grace, forgiving us of our sins. But we respond. We say yes We say yes to the things of God. We love it in return. We hope for it. We believe in faith. We walk in the way that God shows us to walk. Spiritual formation is a cooperation between what God gives us and us learning to say yes and responding positively to what God wants. So these are the two elements that are really important for us to Keep in mind as we begin to talk about what a spiritual friendship is all about. A spiritual friendship is one where people pay attention to this dynamic of taking off the old self and putting on the new. It's a relationship that pays attention to the Holy Spirit and the prompting we get from God to move from sin to righteousness and holiness. David Benner is a psychologist and a writer who provides a lot of great insight on this topic. He puts it this way in his book called Sacred Companions. Spiritual friends nurture the development of each other's soul. Their love for each other translates into a desire that the other settle for nothing less than becoming all that he or she was intended to be. He also puts it this way, The supreme gift that anyone can give another is to help that person live life more aware of the presence of God. I love that quote, and I think it really will help to shape what we mean by spiritual friendship. It's not just about being a friend and adding a couple of spiritual sprinkles on top of our friendship. It's about a certain dynamic that we can have with with one another, of paying attention to the movement of the Holy Spirit, putting aside our old self, putting on the new, and in that whole relationship, having a friend or a companion to urge us along the way, to cheer us on, to pick us up when we're feeling discouraged, and to say yes to the things of God along with us. I hope that this uh, scripture passage gives you a real sense of hope and even a hunger and a thirst to desire more from God. 
that as we learn to live in this individually, I really do think that it will bring transformation. But I also think that as a church, as we learn to do this together, that we will be transformed to being a brighter light to the community around us, to those who are not living in the ways of God, but need a sense of hope. And now this brings us to our final point for today, access prayer groups. This is a new ministry that we're starting for 2021, something that we're launching at the beginning of the year specifically to help people connect more deeply, to form some spiritual friendships, to mitigate some of the uh, effects of isolation and the pandemic. We're clustering people in our church in groups of three to four. These are not replacing small groups or other ministries. They are simply added on top of all those things. It's a group of three or four people who are committed to pray together at least once a month and to share updates on how they were doing. You see, one thing that happens through prayer whenever we pray is we all become more aware of the presence of God. And just like that gift that um, David Benner was talking about in his book, this is a gift that we can offer other people. And as we pray for them and with them, we are lifting them up into God's presence in a sense. So why are we doing these access prayer groups? Number one, they will help us more attentively focus on the Holy Spirit and what God is doing in our midst. And number two, they will be a context for which more spiritual friendships can happen. Now, I want to say a specific word to those of you who may have never joined a prayer group before, or you might feel a little bit intimidated by praying out loud with somebody that you haven't met before or you don't know too deeply. I just want to encourage you, just give this a try for 2021. The initial commitment is only for six meetings, that's six months, six meetings for 2021. And if it doesn't work out for you, that's okay. It's all right to move on to something else. But give this a try to pay more close attention to the Spirit of God. And now, as we wrap up our message for today, I'd like to invite you to join me in a closing prayer as we think about spiritual friendships and how they may impact our community. Let's pray this prayer together. Lord, in this time of isolation and loneliness and discouragement, I pray that love might take deeper root in our church through deeper spiritual friendships. I pray that faith might grow in us as we lay aside our old self and old destructive ways. I pray that hope might inform our vision as we put on the new self. So fall afresh on me, fall afresh on our church, help us to be a brighter light to our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, church, let's recite our sending prayer together today. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, 
where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus. Amen.